Hello and welcome. This is the Climate Voices podcast and I'm your host Omesa Mukaya. On this podcast we explore the pressing issue of climate change by providing an interface for dialogue between different parties involved in climate action ranging from scientists and researchers to policymakers and community champions to break silos and share their positive stories in terms of climate action. We all know for sure that climate change is a global phenomenon that affects every other aspect of our lives and it's indeed crucial to address the communication barrier that conspicuously exists in climate action. With different perspectives and diverse experiences, conversation among people can help bridge the gap and bring about the effective change that we want to see. Join us today as we engage in this, um, what I consider around um, the fireplace, informal conversation and perhaps dive into the complexities of climate change and share our thoughts about um, this issue. Today uh, we deviate a little bit from the conventional way and engage in a conversation. Um, I'm, I'm going to engage in a conversation with a bunch of young people that have had an opportunity of uh, sharing classes with and engaged in meaningful conversations within grad school i mean it's a full house so i'll uh, just introduce i'll just let them introduce themselves and say a little bit about uh, what they do and we pick it up from there so who wants to go first andrew sure hello everyone my name is andrew Shere. i graduated with omessa and focused in school a lot on how do we communicate climate change Uh, And right now, I'm going to be working for Deloitte as a consultant in their government and public services group, where I'll be uh, working on climate sustainability and equity-related projects um, for the government. So everything from coastal resilience to bringing climate technology uh, in to help address issues like wildfire risk. And I guess how I'm feeling about climate change, I'm very hopeful uh, for the future. I mean, just the people around here in this room give me hope for the future. And I know that increasing the amount we talk about this in public, even though it's very difficult, I find it difficult to talk about it in my daily life. Uh, I think it's important for us to talk about that increased conversations like the Climate Voices podcast we have here and to really raise the sense of urgency, get people to really feel climate change and what's happening uh, and then that will create momentum for uh, governments to really create solid policies that enact systematic change into the future. It's amazing actually I remember being in class with you and bringing your experience working before as an engineer and this like is pretty amazing. It's not like we have to be environmentalists to look at things and know that the climate is changing. What you're trying to tell us is like this hope and this hope in communication i pick one thing that you're so passionate about is con- communication and i know actually you did like one of your final papers of in communication trying to come up with the tools on how to address it so thank you so much and uh, so we move to our next uh, guest yeah my name is uh, abe farley and i started thinking more about i guess climate change when i was um, living overseas in east africa so i'm, I'm from the midwest and you know very temperate um, climate and when I was living, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, and with the, there's a monsoon season and dry season, there's much more extreme climate in that area. And it really had me start thinking about um, vulnerable populations and places that don't have quite as much um, 
infrastructure as we do, but also just a little bit more vulnerable to those um, extreme events that happen. So I then studied water resources a bit when I got back to the States, and um, that's what I think about now in terms of what issues that we might be facing in, in the near future, both from like a water scarcity standpoint, but also water quality, um, and yeah. Thank you so much. I like that you have had an experience of you know coming from the U.S. and working in East Africa and, and having to see the experience there, what people are going through, and, and picking some lessons there, from especially in agriculture, in water shortage, because we know climate change is impacting those you know, sectors. So, I, I mean, I come from Kenya. I've experienced the impacts in real life, and then I come here, see, like, people are so passionate. I only thought that we, only th we are the only one who care about the climate changing, but I come here and find someone, like, you know, like you coming from the U.S. and having experienced those and seeing what people are going through, you know, it gives you that motivation to, to be wanting to be part of the solution. So thank you so much. Yeah, so we move to our next guest. Hello, um, my name is Kat Kobelt, and I was a colleague of Omesa at Clark, and I'm now working for a regional planning agency, and we do, we work with climate projects all over the state, um, anywhere from water resources to clean energy to climate resilience, coastal resilience as well, and so, um, yeah, that's what I'm doing now. Uh, hi everyone, my name is Mahalate. Uh, I'm from Ethiopia. I am a colleague with Omesa, uh, Clark University. I studied environmental science and policy and my major was climate change and adaptation. Um, I want to work on uh, clean energy because I believe that energy is the, the biggest polluter and that causes climate change. Uh, I'm currently working as ESG Sustainability Associate with a private company that works in different projects. Yep. <laughs> so we move to our next guest. Thanks so much for having me, Omesa. My name's Katie, and it's been so great to get to know you over the past few years during our graduate studies. One thing that has always really interested me is the intersection of large-scale actions, such as how federal projects from the United States can impact climate actions and adaptation in different countries, and how that ties in with the individual actions that people can take both in the U.S. and all over the world. So one of the things I'm excited to, to start on is getting engaged with NGO that's local here, right here in Massachusetts. And I'm interested to see where that goes and how I can work to inspire normal people who aren't necessarily interested in climate change in their day-to-day -day lives to take just small actions that can have an impact on this really crazy terrible, horrible, wicked problem. I couldn't find better words to describe it. Yeah, so thank you so much. You move to our next guest. Yeah, so my name is Justin Ricky. Um, my background's in sustainable development. I currently work with, uh, in workforce development, working with refugees and immigrants that are um, displaced and looking for work here in the United States. But my uh, background, you know, working in Madagascar, I did a lot of projects with deforestation and working with um, sustainable food security projects um, in the southeast of Madagascar. Um, what I can see is like I'm, I'm in a room full of um, you know experience and diversity people who've worked in different sectors from uh, you know sustainability to hydrology to you know working with uh, communities and myself trying to figure out what I'm actually good at. So the thing is um, a lot is going on and um, 
um, I remember we were having this kind of like informal conversations last week only that we didn't have it on record but one thing we talked about is like there's a lot of desperation across the planet and um, we all feel like nothing is happening sometimes you feel like you you don't want to be part of this planet you want to move to some part of another planet which we actually don't know if life is going to be better on that other side so what do we feel about what's happening currently sometimes we, i mean i know we talked about climate anxiety and this is something that no, most people don't even think about so when you look at all these things that are happening you know refugees migrating from other parts of the world we see what's happening in turkey it's not we can't say that it's a climate per se but some of these natural catastrophes happening pushing people from their what they considered homes to being forced to move to something else and now we have things like climate refugees uh, you said um, um you Justin you worked in Madagascar uh, Abe worked in you know East Africa in Tanzania I've worked in Kenya we are all working in different parts and we see all these things happening what does it make you feel do you feel like we are doing enough that is there hope i definitely have hope uh, i think that's what we need as climate activists because if we don't have hope we can't get anywhere and with climate anxiety as someone who struggles with regular anxiety as well it definitely compounds itself but with regular anxiety the way to get through that is through actions whether it's you know meditation or exercise so i feel like it's very similar to you know when we have all this climate anxiety building up the way to do something about that and to get hope is to do something about the climate and act on it and that gives me a lot of hope right now i'm not working in a job that works directly on climate i'm sure i could find opportunities within that role and i think a lot of people probably could but it becomes difficult with funding and all that of course um but i have a lot of hope because this is just the start i mean the largest climate legislation bill was just recently passed even though it was cut down from i think 2 or 3 trillion dollars to 400 billion um so there's still a lot of work we need to to get done but i think the momentum is building and it's becoming stronger and stronger and i think a big part of it is just making it more mainstream making climate change and global warming not just a thing in the news you know and connecting it to weather events so it, it takes a, like the whole entire system to do that and i think what i struggle with is a very privileged person in a developed country i see it as oh there's no snow on the mountains so i can't ski but and that's i think a lot of new england is it's a positive thing that global warming is happening like i said earlier to you all having conversations with people this warm weather is something that's good it's not cold out so i don't have to be stuck up inside i can go outside and enjoy um the environment um so there's that like psychological distance that exists for a lot of people in this area myself included not being to africa seeing direct impacts uh or like noticing sea level rise and erosion on cape cod i'm kind of in my own bubble here um but i i have hope because you know we're slowly making progress in government and this is having some um 
trickle down effects or triple up <laughs> to 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 the EU, which is enacting some more ambitious plans after the Biden administration had put through the IRA and the other legislation. So there is hope. Well, in one of our classes last semester, we, we looked at how the European Union is actually uh, you know, leading in climate action and how now the United States is coming in with, the, you, you make reference to the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, and we see a lot of you know, funds being committed to climate action, not just com climate action, but environmental conservation. But you know, we have seen regime change and, and Trump's administration that pulled the U.S. out of you know, Paris Agreement. But now with Biden's administration and the amount of resources that are being you know, channeled into climate action, something that brings hope it gives us hope that they're actually being recognized that it's happening and it's not just here in the u.s but most of the work that is being dedicated is actually impacting people overseas and you mentioned that there's hope and as a young person who is being impacted and i, I mean i learned we were having informal conversations again with you and and you brought up this term about climate anxiety. I mean, I never looked at it before in that um, perspective, but you try to sit back and look at it. you like, it's actually happening and people are being affected, but without even realizing it's because of climate. And you're so passionate about, again, I make reference to your, your work in climate communication. And one of the slogans I always use for this podcast is we are addressing the climate crisis one conversation at a time because people are not even talking about it enough to actually realize what is happening. So I really appreciate what we're having here today. I mean, it's young people are talking about issues that are facing us mostly, but being impacted from different capacities. So I really appreciate all of you being here today. And I, I like the perspectives that you're giving. So like Andrew just said, what he feels about the climate crisis. Yeah, I can, I can, I can jump in on that. I guess I always choose to have hope. It's just me, I guess. Uh, not only on climate change, it's in general. Uh, I always look for something that gives me hope. And um, regarding energy especially, uh, the current Ukraine and Russian war uh, made uh, European and the US to look for uh, clean alternative energy sources. And that gives me hope that countries may divert completely into renewable energy and that will help the climate, the, uh, the carbon emission reduction. And also Andrew mentioned about the uh, Inflation Reduction Act that uh, has a huge amount of money um, that will help the state to to divert into this uh, clean energy thing. So that's my hope, I guess. Also, something that is hopeful for me, is specifically about climate anxiety, is that the younger generation, I think especially Gen Z, but also millennials, and this is like a generalization, they're more used to talking about mental health and anxieties and stresses and worries more than the generation before us. So when it comes to climate change, it's important that they are used to talking about those types of things and then they you know, are more vocal and feel comfortable talking about how much climate change is stressing everyone out and, and what can we do about it instead of maybe previous generations who are quieter about it and didn't know how to vocalize, things like that. So of course these are generalizations, but I think that's hopeful is seeing the next generation and knowing that how much we can rely on the youth because of what they've already, you know, all the strengths that they already have. That's a really great point, Kat. Um, and I, I do think that it's inspiring to see how much our generation and the younger generation 
cares and is truly passionate about climate change. And I will also say that it is not enough because we are still relatively early in careers and Gen Z is very, very early in their careers. And so the people with the expertise and the money and the political authority to make the biggest impacts are also the ones who need to step up at the same time. Fortunately, I think it's okay to let youth generations be leaders in in some ways because when you look at the ways that our education system works, if you're trying to impact the thinking of adults, often you will try to teach their children something and children can then teach their parents. And when you are, as a parent, are so invested in your child, you start to become invested in what their interests are as well. So I think youth education and youth movements are truly promising as long as we try to filter that up to additional action as well. Yeah, I mean, picking up on that thread, there's a lot of philanthropy going into like on the ground work, right? So like you spoke about, you know, reaching out to kids so that the kids, you know, if if you if the kids believe in something, they're going to annoy their parents enough to where they're going to also fall in line. Um, that's just the way it works. And that is kind of an a, on the grounds, you know, uh, movement. But there's a lot of philanthropy that's going into groundwork, like small grassroots programs. And I think that gives me a little bit of hope that, you know, if you take the government out of it, there's still a lot of uh, organizations, small organizations that are doing a lot of work and just a little bit, you know, building on uh, one person and another person, another person, and, you know, over time, creating a bigger impact. Yeah, and it's also amazing that children these days are interested in science and climate change. Um, I had a chance to visit my cousin in Vegas, and uh, I was talking with her son, who's, I think, seven years old. I was amazed by his uh, knowledge about climate change. Yeah, and the detail, how carbon emission affects human health and everything. And that really gives me hope, you know. I don't, I don't think at that age I know about climate change. That's, that's interesting that you mentioned that young kids are actually talking about climate change. Uh, I was telling this story before. I, I mean, I came to be interested in climate change because I was taking it as a career, but I didn't realize that it's actually something that affects everyone in society and, and it's something that should be taught in schools. And from the conversations that we have had before, not just in class, but like informally, is that this knowledge needs to be passed down to you know the younger kids to be talking about it early enough to understand what's happening because we don't want a case where... Uh, we're having species extinction and I don't know, maybe in future kids learning about pictures of trees or pictures of elephants that there used to be a creature called an elephant. So, <laughs> I mean, that's some, some of the things that because we're actually talking about generational equity, that's something we have uh, talked about in other conversations before when you talk about sustainability. It's about trying to leave the world uh, better than we found it, trying to you know make it better for our future generations. Uh, I don't know who said that, but I want this one uh, saying ahead that we never inherited the planet from our parents, but we borrowed it from our children. So something borrowed, you have to pass it back, you know. You don't want to pass back something that you borrowed in a bad condition, because if you feel like you inherited, you feel the entitlement. So if you borrowed it from your children, so it means you have to pass it down. So. And I think that's a really good frame to but motivate what, oh, the old... Sorry to interrupt. You, you, Andrew, you made reference sometime about 
privilege and, and that's something that we really look up look at you know and it, it features most in uh, climate conversations especially when you lo we look at the aspect of justice you know uh, the global north versus the global south and these are conversations we have been having over and over again you know how climate change impacts people in the global north versus how it impacts the people in the global south that's a conversation that most people especially in the international you know uh, arena tend to shy away from do you feel like enough is done by the people who did a lot to contribute to the climate crisis are they doing enough to address the climate crisis to you know save humanity in the global south i don't think so at all i mean i think the u.s is responsible for 25 percent of the the carbon that's the carbon stock in the air and the EU is responsible for another like 25% or something like that. So we are responsible for a lot of the warming that's already occurred. Um, and it seems like we gave what a billion dollars or something like that uh, recently to developing countries as kind of like climate reparations. But we you know, continue, not that it's a bad thing, but we continue to invest in our own kind of decarbonized future in, in technologies, which is, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. So I really don't think it's enough, not nearly enough, especially considering we're a big reason why a lot of the warming and catastrophes have happened already. But playing this blame game is <laughs> really difficult in the I don't know, political setting, um, and really hard to kind of negotiate and, and say that, you know, we, we caused all this. And I think that's where a lot of the hang up comes from is people not wanting to take the blame for what's already happened, even though it's, you know, the writing is on the wall. Um, yeah, I'd be interested to hear what everyone else has to say on that. Um, I was going to say, I think, I, I mean, I agree with Andrew. I think as long as countries from the global north are continuing to participate in these associations and conferences and things things that just kind of result in just like an empty promise. Um, there's not nearly enough that's being done. It's just very tokenistic um, to not have binding agreements coming out of these, you know, COP conferences and, you know, meeting of the minds, as they say, um, with little to no action being done after the fact. So, yeah, like I said, it's tokenistic and it's not nearly doing any anything close to what it should be doing. Um, it's not even scratching the surface. So I think there's a lot of responsibility that needs to be held with these leaders who talk the talk. <laughs> also with responsibility comes the admission of the effects of developed countries on climate change and then climate change effects on global south and those impacts on back onto developed countries. So that was a roundabout way of saying that. But one example I'm thinking of in particular is what some folks in the United States would refer to as the immigration crisis. And many of climate refugees displaced from places in South and Central America, in part by climate change, are arriving at the U.S. southern border. And there is absolutely a responsibility of the United States to take some action for that uh, because the United States caused at least some part of that. So I think there's a lot of stepping up and a lot of leadership that the U.S. has to take because what the U.S. likes to think of itself as the global leader but is absolutely failing in the climate arena. Yeah, I mean, if it, 
uh, if the US thought of itself as a global leader in the climate arena too, it could be good. I mean, if we had a superpower in climate action, that could be really nice. Yeah, I, you, you all make uh, reference to very important and critical points. Right now, uh, Kat, you made reference to the COP conversations, the conference of parties, the last happened in Shamel Sheikh in Egypt, but we saw a lot of participation from the fossil fuel uh, companies, which I somehow was seen as ridiculous. Companies, big companies like Coca-Cola funding some of the proceedings, you know, um, the, I saw people scrambling over free soda. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of ridiculous, but, uh, you know, we're having these, you know, global processes and negotiating about who takes what. And given that the theme for this year was, it's, they said it was going to be an adaptation COP, you know, trying to push for more funding to be channeled towards adaptation because uh, tension has been over time given to mitigation. But we see global corporations who are involved, you know, in fossil fuel industry taking part in climate negotiations, and people say nothing is really happening. But the argument was, if we are going to address this, we need them on the table to listen to their part and having them take part in the conversations that we are having. It's a very critical point in that, because what what we are having here is having a conversation on trying to look for solutions. And and one of the ways to find solutions is to, you know, identify the root causes. And if these people are the root causes, what better way of, you know, solving it than having them on the table? So I, I might uh, actually try to, you know, agree with that, that it's not all lost and we don't really have to, you know, sidetrack them, keep pointing fingers. It's it's enough time we need to act now, you know. Like I say, it's, it's, it's empty promises. We don't need pushing on empty promises. We really have to have everyone on the table having the conversations and that's how we're going to address the issues that are facing everyone. And I know trying to save the planet at large. That's a really great point, Omesa. And part of the reason why I think it's so important to have fossil fuel companies at the table in climate solutions is because no one profits from vilification. We we love to hate on these villains in climate change, but any fossil fuel company that is aware of the reality will soon come to admit, or many have already realized, that their business model is unsustainable and eventually they'll just go out of business whether they are denying climate change or not. And so recognizing that there are humans behind every business decision and trying to speak to the people's hearts and refraining from creating outcasts, I think can be another important way to turn people who have created a lot of harm into a force that could do a lot of good going into the future, but it's a, a pretty massive shift that would have to occur as well. I was just going to say, I totally agree with Katie. It's a smart business move for them to be at the table. So they should come probably on their knees begging for forgiveness and <laughs> with with conditions, but uh, they, they should show up. I agree. And we should let them join. Most recently, I'm sure you've all seen it. Patagonia uh, founder Yvonne Chouinard said that in the future all Patagonia's profits are going to go to climate action groups so like very bold business moves like that uh, that are very unselfish and <laughs> not like business, high business greed is a very good way to attract a lot of customers I mean that's as someone who works in retail currently that's something I tell to a lot of customers and 
a lot of people will go towards Patagonia for that reason. I mean, that's why I buy their stuff because of their business model. Um, and they're a very successful company that have, you know, done organic cotton, even when it was expensive and they continue to be successful. So it's smart. It's a smart business decision to, you know, take care of the planet and, you know, be a leader in the field. So, you know, with businesses, I think it was like the top 100, like there's a hundred businesses that pollute 70% of the emissions or something crazy like that. So, so they have like so much play in this, in, in the stock of carbon stock out there and they can make changes a lot faster than governments. So I'm really interested to see what businesses do, especially because the, the right now we're a fossil fuel economy. So transitioning to a low carbon economy in the future is going to happen. <laughs> and companies are ha have to get on board. I mean, the SEC's requiring climate disclosures now. So there's going to be a lot of positive changes. And the, the companies that are on the leading edge of that are going to profit really, really well. I mean, you see Microsoft is buying up a ton of carbon capture technologies and 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 getting getting right in where this action started starting so i'm really excited that gives me hope too just to know that like our economy is going to change and it's going to be better for people it's going to be for a clean cleaner cleaner earth so yeah i'm getting excited just talking about it actually uh regarding the renewable energy especially solar panel panels um my concern is I don't think it's getting much attention about the waste management, the e-waste, um, because it's just one of uh, the things that contribute for climate change and also very hazardous, um, also carcinogenic. Um, I don't, I don't usually see people talking about the waste management, especially e-wasters, even the climate activists did not mention this more. And that's my concern, um, especially when you like all the countries, developed countries like U.S., um, Massachusetts, I guess. Uh, there is a program to give residents for free, um, you know, having this all, the, the waste will increase. Uh, so I, I'm not sure if there is any uh, plan or program for the e-waste management regarding on that. So maybe if you... Any, any one of you have um, anything about this, the e-waste management? I don't know much about e-waste management specifically, but there are movements um, that are, have kicked off in Europe about the right to repair electronic devices. And that's something that gives me a lot of hope. And it's based around the idea that electronic devices hold such important and valuable metals, uh, and elements that are so costly to extract from the earth, um, not only monetarily, but also from a justice, it, social and environmental perspective, that if we can make it easier to re repair our electronic devices instead of just replacing them all the time, they will be much more sustainable. And I think that also ties in with reducing consumption of buying 
the the latest thing all the time which can definitely trade off with buying a new more energy efficient device so it's a problem that the environmental movement and our culture around the world is going to be grappling with for time to come yeah i think your point mala is is really important i think as we quickly transition to more solar panels and and batteries and um just everything running on you know, being electric, I think that's something that we really need to be careful of because it's a really slippery slope. And especially in the U.S., the transition is and and will be really quick. And so if we don't have that infrastructure for waste management in place, then we're kind of just creating another cycle. And so, yeah, I think that's really important to keep bringing up in these conversations. I'd be interested, you know, right now, unfortunately, there isn't really a market for that recycled goods and it's it's cheaper and more economically viable for companies to extract those materials so i'd be really interested in the future of how we make it more uh, economically attractive to use recycled goods i know my, my uncle actually works for tesla and he's doing a lot of work on tesla wants to have their car almost a hundred percent recyclable into the future um so creating that circular economy where you have um you know cradle to cradle instead of cradle to grave is going to be really important getting away from the linear economy um and i I heard a podcast that was talking about how do we get like mining and minerals companies to kind of switch their whole business model to be these like massive recyclers of the future. So that's what I'm really interested in because like you said, it's we're gonna put ourselves in the same problem, maybe even a worse problem because of the destruction of extractivism. Uh, I talked with someone this weekend um, that works for Blue Origins, I think it is, which is like the Jeff Bezos company uh, and he said they're working on moving manufacturing to the moon so that they can divert <laughs> the problem somewhere else. Um, so I really hope, you know, <laughs> we're spending money in other places other than that. Uh, yeah, and, and like focusing on our planet and how we take care of that. Um, so, yeah, that was really interesting. Sometimes it's, it starts with the individual, it's personal responsibility. We are trying to run away from problems. We make planet Earth inhabitable and now we're trying to run away to look for life in other planets while we have this one that we need to take care of. So, I mean, we can sit here and have these conversations like the whole day. But yeah, so I, I'm grateful for all the you know, contributions you guys are making and for anyone who's listening out there, I mean, I like that we're having the conversations at the moment. The podcast, as I mentioned in my last episode, it started like six months ago. But now we have um, audience in like, I think, 21 countries at the moment. So all these conversations are, high, are going out there and people are listening and getting these different perspectives. So as we come to the end of this, I don't understand yet the whole night. What one thing could you tell these people in these 21 countries who are listening and more will be listening in future because this is going to be out there for people to listen to what could you tell anyone who feels out you know out there who feels so stressed about the happenings about who is being impacted you know 
we have these models about sea level rise, future sea level rise, about increased desertification, about the future pandemics and diseases like coronavirus and all that. What could you tell someone that feels so desperate and feels so depressed about climate change? Yeah, well, I think something that you hit on was you talked about individual action. And I think when looking at the urgency of the issue and then the scope, like the huge scope, it's really hard for people to relate their decisions broader picture. Um, it's really easy to think of your like individual actions, just noise of the big signal that's being, or the greater trend in climate change. So um, it's something that I struggle with, but really trying to connect, I guess, your individual decisions to like the broader, the broader picture, the bigger picture is really important. And then something else that we talked about, we talked about e-waste and just in terms of like due to the urgency of this issue, like there will be like some missteps almost. Like we ideally will be able to have like a a nice thought out process for this transition, but there will be times when there are, um, I guess, amendments will have to be made. If I would say something to people who are concerned about climate change, um, just uh, have faith and hope and little thing, little contribution uh, will change create awareness, educate people about climate change, share what you know, be mindful on the consumption and the material we use, and think about the future for other generations as well. I think it's just a way of not to be selfish, I guess. To think about climate changes, I guess, not to be selfish. That's what I, I could say. Thank you, Miss. One of my final thoughts would be to find something or more specifically one thing that animates you about the climate crisis. It's really, really overwhelming if we try to worry about all of the different aspects and if we try to tackle all of the problems. There's way too many for any one person to worry about all at one time. So I'm trying to find one thing that I'm truly passionate about in the climate crisis and then find a way to scale up my individual action into more collective action. So whether that's working with your company, working with your your employer to tackle one aspect of your workplace and make it more sustainable or work with your, uh, if you have a retirement account that's either employer sponsored or some, some other type, make sure it's not invested in fossil fuels or make sure it's invested in companies that are putting their money towards solving the climate crisis. Or if you're in the U.S. or contact your legislator about climate legislation. Apparently, legislators will see a significant interest from their constituents if they have like four people contact them about an issue. It's an absurdly low number. So just like reach out to them. There's form emails you can send. Just give them a call, leave a voicemail, send an email. If you want to get involved in actual advocacy, there's lots of grassroots organizations that that do that. Um, so find a way to pick one thing that you're really truly passionate about and then scale up your impact. That's really powerful. Anything you do from writing emails to legislators and posting on social media or doing a march on the street or whatever it takes, action really counts and when we put pressure on our 
leaders if they are not they are failing to act what i learned from that is like citizen mobilization and grassroots mobilization and and you know all that puts pressure and at some point they are going to be forced to act um and they can also be small like from the comfort of your own home listening to this podcast and sharing it and just doing things you know trying to re- challenge yourself one day try to reduce your food waste or you know shop secondhand for a week you know only secondhand for a week and just things like that that you can start small and just kind of see like katie said where what excites you about it and um and you're not alone because we're all we're all here together yeah I'll add to, you know, keep faith, like Mahalat said earlier, and just know that, I mean, we're all all here working on climate change in some form. Like, work is getting done, uh, and there's a lot of people that are very passionate about this subject. Like, never before in history, I think, I'm sure there's there's some uh, similarities to other causes and acts. Have we had, you know, this kind of catastrophic global event that affects everything? socially economically culturally the impacts are huge like this is a massive movement and i'm actually honored to be a part of it to be honest like to be around people like you that are so motivated by this that are like our hearts and souls are in it like not many people can say that their work is their like heart and soul and they give so much to it like I feel very privileged to be here and honestly it's a great movement to be a part of the people are very caring some of my best friends are all here from grad school and I'm sure I'll make amazing friends in the future that are all motivated in it so just join the movement and I mean we had some amazing answers from everyone that's here of, of ways to do that um, yeah and just keep the faith because what helps me is kind of visualizing a future that I see uh, a clean future a more equitable future and think about that more because i feel you it can get really dark uh when you start thinking negatively so think about that bright future that we will create powerful <laughs> from my colleagues here so um it starts little starts small doesn't matter what you're doing whatever you do it makes a difference so change begins from an individual and let's all do that yeah so thanks um everyone for being here today i feel motivated i feel so thank you so much and for for being here anyone who's listening out there uh, just like what we're having here having the conversation i, I believe um, this is changing and we're going to see the great impact that um, we want to see for the planet and this actually hope not just for humanity but also for the planet for all the species for the ecosystem you know we are, they, they say we are looking at major tipping points we could be having major loss of biodiversity and all that i don't know maybe humanity is going to be extinct at some point if we continue doing this but let's do what we can whenever we can wherever we can let's make all that uh, you know impact for the planet you want to say something I just want to thank you. Thank you, Omisa. You're really doing a great job. I uh, appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you so much. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm humble. Thanks, everyone, for being here today. And for whoever is listening, keep tuned. Uh, check out our social media pages. We'll be sharing you know, much of these conversations in future. Look out and follow. make sure to follow our social media pages uh, so that you don't uh, feel left behind. Whenever the train leaves, the train has actually left the station we are. We are addressing the climate crisis and my, my slogan is 
addressing the climate climate one conversation at a time so thanks everyone for being here this is the climate voices podcast and i'm your host <laughs> yeah, thank you <laughs>